Well, we have some kids here this morning. Let me, let me ask some of you kids here today or uh, any of you watching at home this morning, how many of you have uh, regular chores that your parents ask you to, to do each week? Do we have some kids here that have a regular chore list? Yeah, we have a few hands up, and I'm sure uh, many of you at home as well have regular chores that your parents ask you to do. Now, parents, let me ask you a question. Is there any greater joy in a parent's life than when your kids actually do the chores you've asked them to do? You know what I'm saying? Uh, I had an experience like that just this week. Uh, one of the things that uh, my son Caleb is asked to do at our house is, uh, now that he's gotten older, one of his regular chores is when we have snow, he, uh, he goes out and he shovels and plows our driveway for us. And, uh, you know, a year or two ago, that was a big deal. He couldn't wait to get out and plow the driveway. Now that he's getting a little bit older and he's a high school student, it's, it's sometimes a little bit more of a task to encourage him to go out and plow the driveway. But this past Wednesday morning, after that big snowstorm we had Tuesday night and throughout the early morning hours of Wednesday, uh, I woke up and I was thinking, oh, man, I'm going to have to go up and I'm going to have to get in a big argument and, you know, push Caleb out his room and get him out the door to plow. And, and I'm just setting myself up for this big, you know, big battle to get Caleb out to plow the driveway. Well, I wake up and I head upstairs and I'm ready to get into this big argument with my son and I look out the window and there's Caleb plowing our driveway. And I was thinking to myself, wow, this is amazing. This is awesome. And I opened the door and, and I said, hey, Caleb, thank you, buddy. Thank you. I was so just so pleased and so overjoyed to see my son out there doing what he was supposed to do without me having to get out and, and, and make a big deal about it. You know, it's a great joy. It blesses our hearts as parents when our kids honor our, our will, when they obey what we've asked them to do. And, and friends, I think our Heavenly Father feels the exact same way. He feels the exact same way about each of us when we live in obedience to his will for our lives. When, when we follow and obey the things that he has called us to do, it brings great joy to the Lord's heart. And, and truly, friends, our obedience in following God's will is one of the ways that we worship the Lord. Again, worship isn't just about what happens here on Sunday mornings. Worship is a lifestyle and part of that lifestyle of worship is living faithfully in obedience to, to what God has called us to as his people. Now today, we're going to turn to a passage in, in the second half of John chapter 4 where Jesus is going to share some lessons with us. Actually, the Apostle John, writing the testimony of Jesus' life, John is going to reveal for us three lessons that, that he learned as a result of his time and his observation of, of Jesus and his life and ministry. And, and these lessons are going to help us learn a bit more together today about what it means to do our Heavenly Father's will. What, what is it that God wills and desires for us? Well, certainly there's a number of things scripturally that God desires for us in terms of following his will. But today we're going to look at three specific lessons found in this passage about what it looks like to do the Father's will. We're in John chapter 4 today, verses 31 through 54. I'm going to read our passage, and then I want to highlight these three lessons for us. <clears throat> Starting in verse 31, again, Jesus has just finished his conversation with the Samaritan woman at this well outside of the village of Sychar, and he is in the region of Samaria. He's had this powerful conversation. This woman has gone back into her city, has testified to what Jesus has shared with her, and then in verse 31 we read, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to, him, said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. 
He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water turn into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him, to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. As he was going down, His servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Another terrific passage here for us this morning. A great story, a series of stories here that have much to teach us. Much to teach us about doing our Heavenly Father's will. In fact, I want to highlight today three lessons in this passage that can help us understand how we can live and, and do our Heavenly Father's will most faithfully. The first lesson that we see here in our passage in verses 31 through 34, our will should conform to his will by saying, I will. Friends, you get that? Our will should conform to his will by saying, I will. Here in verse 31 through 34, we we find Jesus on the heels of his conversation with this Samaritan woman. She's gone back into her village. She's, she's shared her testimony of all that Jesus had revealed to her. She's invited the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. And, and the people of Sychar are now flooding out of the village, coming down the hillsides to the well to see Jesus. In the meantime, Jesus' disciples had returned. And Jesus' disciples see Jesus there at the side of the well, and they they assume Jesus must have been thirsty, and so he had obviously stopped to get a drink, because that's what you do at the well. And, And if Jesus is thirsty, maybe Jesus is also hungry. It makes sense, right? And so the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, are you hungry? Do you want something to eat? And Jesus here makes a very interesting statement. In verse 34, a statement that the great preacher Charles Spurgeon once called a golden sentence. A a golden nugget here in the midst of this passage. In verse 34, Jesus' response to his disciples is, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus, are you hungry? Jesus, do you want something to eat? Jesus says, I have food you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Now, friends, this isn't to say that Jesus never truly hungered. Jesus was was fully human, and we know throughout the Gospels that Jesus regularly ate with his disciples. He was a man like you and I. He he had a body of flesh and blood that that needed to be fed and fueled. And and so Jesus knew physical hunger, but but Jesus' point here to his disciples is, is more significant than physical hunger. Jesus is talking about the reality that his priorities in life were bigger than simply food and drink. Jesus was so consumed with the calling to do his Father's will. 
He was so wrapped up in the task at hand, the, the task of sharing the good news of the gospel with the people of Samaria, that, that he didn't have time to eat. Right? Have you ever been involved in an activity that you're just super passionate about? Maybe, maybe you're a fisherman like I am, and you'll be out on the water for all, you know, all day long, fishing, 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 and you, you won't even think about food all day long because you're so wrapped up in this activity that you're passionate about. Jesus is, is saying essentially the same thing. He was so committed to doing the Heavenly Father's will, to sharing the good news of the gospel, he, he wasn't worried about food. Don't, don't bother me with food. I'm in the middle of doing my heavenly Father's will. It was in doing his Father's will that Jesus found full and complete satisfaction. And friends, in sharing this reality with his disciples, Jesus was inviting them into the blessing of experiencing this same fulfillment and satisfaction. Jesus was essentially saying to his disciples, you, you, think, you think life's about food and drink? Let, let me tell you where true satisfaction is found. Let me tell you where true fullness comes from. It comes from doing the will of our Heavenly Father. And friends, I want you to notice something here. Isn't this really just the same message that Jesus had just finished sharing with the Samaritan woman a few minutes earlier? Isn't that really essentially the same message he just shared with the Samaritan woman? The Samaritan woman had come to get a drink. And what was Jesus' response to the Samaritan woman? Whoever drinks of the water I will give will never be thirsty again. Jesus says, look it, you've come to the well. And he uses the well as a metaphor for, for all the things in this world that we go to looking for fulfillment and joy and satisfaction and wholeness. And, and Jesus says, look it, th this well will never satisfy your deepest thirst. You need to drink from the living water. And now the disciples come to him and say, Jesus, we're, are you hungry? We have food, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, forget about food. I have food you don't know about. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me, my heavenly Father. Friends, true satisfaction in life, true fullness in life comes from doing the will of our heavenly Father. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that, that we were created and made to experience fullness and satisfaction living in the will of God? It's true, friends. It's what we were made for, and we see this truth all throughout Scripture. I could share dozens and dozens of verses with you this morning. Let, let me just highlight a few for you from, from the Old Testament through the New Testament. Psalm 1611, for example. Psalm 1611, King David says, You, God, make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What is David saying? David's saying, I want to live my life in the path that you've set out before me. I want to live my life doing your will because it is there where I experience the fullness of joy. We, we see Jesus sharing with his disciples, Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is saying, look at if you want joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, seek first the kingdom of God. Follow our Heavenly Father's will. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, 9, at the, at the end of this letter that he's written to his friends in Philippi, Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. In other words, as your teacher, as your apostle, as your discipler and mentor, everything I've said, everything I've taught you, practice these things. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What is Paul saying? Friends, if you want to know true peace in life, true contentment in life, true satisfaction in life, follow the will of our Heavenly Father. All throughout Scripture, friends, we see this theme. You see, God created us to put Him first in our lives. He created us to, to elevate His will above all else. And I, I like to use the metaphor that, that our lives are, are like a pyramid. Our lives are like a pyramid and, and we have different blocks that we plug into this pyramid, things that are important to us, things that we're involved in, activities and jobs and hobbies and interests and concerns. But the Bible tells us that, that God needs to be at the pinnacle of that pyramid. 
He wants to be the focal point. He needs to be the center of it all. And from that focal point, everything else falls into its logical place. Seek first the kingdom of God. Follow his will, obey his will, and then all these things will be added unto you. Then you'll know joy and contentment no matter what else transpires in your life and circumstances. But you see, the problem for us so often as human beings, because of our sinful hearts and our rebellion, we so often get those blocks in that pyramid out of order, don't we? We tend to take Jesus and and the will of our Father, and we tend to take him off of that focal point, that pinnacle block, and, and we end up sometimes lowering him to the second or third level in our lives. And we put other things above God and his will, like our job or our hobbies or our passions or other relationships. And and pretty soon, life just doesn't seem to give us that fullness that we long for, that satisfaction that we desire. And we start to wonder, well, what's going on? What am I missing here? Well, friends, it's, it's because we've got our pyramid out of order. God and his will needs to be our first priority Everything else falls into place under him. And that is where we experience true joy and satisfaction in life. You know, one of the greatest illustrations of this reality in all of Scripture is the contrast that we see in the Bible between Lucifer, the first creation of God, the the greatest of God's angels, Lucifer who fell and became Satan, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We see an incredible contrast here in in how they chose to obey the will of our Heavenly Father. Lucifer, for example, the the first of God's creation, the the greatest of God's angelic beings. And in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, we read of Lucifer before his fall from glory in heaven, before he turned into the devil, Satan. Isaiah tells us that Lucifer, oh, how you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. That word there is is Lucifer. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, listen, this is Isaiah saying, this is what Lucifer said. This is what led to his fall. You say in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to shale to the far reaches of the pit. Isaiah tells us here five times, Lucifer says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. For Lucifer, it was all about me, 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 me. What's in it for me? I want to fulfill my desires. And Lucifer, in elevating his will and his priorities, ultimately led to misery and ruin. Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus obeyed his heavenly Father's will. Jesus, for example, in, in the book of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-10, through 10, the apostle Paul tells us to, to have the mind of Christ among ourselves, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient, even to the point of death. Therefore God has elevated him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Friends, Jesus, in contrast to Lucifer, chose to humble himself under his Father's will. And in humbling himself, Jesus elevated his Father's will. And in elevating his will and his priorities, it led to ultimate joy and satisfaction and eternal glory. What a contrast. Let me ask you this morning, friends, whose will are you elevating in your life today? Are you living for the Lord? Or are you lording over your life? Whose will are you elevating today? You see, how you answer that question will make all the difference in your experience of ultimate joy and satisfaction. We were made to do our Father's will. We were made to put Him first. 
our will should conform to his will by saying, I will. The second lesson we see here in our passage this morning, the second lesson, the right time is always the time right now. When do we do our Father's will? When do we walk in obedience? John reveals that the right time is always the time right now. Let me read for us again verses 35 through 38. Jesus has just finished sharing with his disciples that he has food that they know nothing about. His food is to do the will of him who sent me. And in verse 35, Jesus says, Do you not say, he quotes this proverb, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. The fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages. Jesus says to his disciples next, and and I want you to picture the scene here, right? The woman at the well has just gone back into her village, and now the people of Sychar are flooding out of their village, and they're streaming down the hillside towards the well. And Jesus looks to his disciples and says, look, forget about four months from now. Four months and then comes the harvest. No, look, lift up your eyes. The the fields are white for the harvest. Jesus points to dozens and dozens of Samaritans heading towards them saying, there's our harvest. The fields are ready. The harvest is ripe. I I remember the the last year that I was a youth pastor, uh, I took my students on a missions trip to the Blackfeet Indian Reservation in, in northwest Montana far northwest Montana. It was a two-day drive to get there, and it's, it, it's an incredible scene when you're driving through northwest Montana. There was stretches of roads hundreds of miles long with no towns in sight, but all you could see for miles and miles and miles all the way to the horizon were wheat fields. Wheat fields. And when we took this trip at the end of August, the, the wheat fields were white unto harvest. For miles and miles and miles, all we could see were the white heads of wheat ready to be harvested. I was thinking about that imagery this week as I read Jesus' words here. Look, the fields are white unto harvest. And and I thought, you know, these wheat fields in Montana, this is the same way the, the Lord looks and sees our world today. When God looks down on our world from his heavenly vantage point, he sees a world that looks like fields white unto harvest. He looks from his heavenly vantage point and he sees millions and millions of people as far as the eye can see. People who need Jesus. People who need someone to tell them about Jesus. The fields are white unto harvest. Friends, do you know that every year in this world, every year 56 million people die. 56 million people die every year. That turns out to 1.8 people per second. Every second. Every second. Two more people go to their eternal destiny. 56 million people a year. These are people who need to know Jesus. These are people who need someone to share the good news of the gospel with them. These are people who who face an eternal destiny separated from God forever if they don't know Jesus. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, 14, and 15, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And, And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How beautiful to the Lord are the feet of those who who go into the harvest and share the good news with those who desperately need to hear the hope of the gospel. You know, friends, as I think about this passage, it it, it led me all week to to reflect on who, who are the people in my life who need to hear the good news who are the people in your life who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ? 
who need to hear the hope that there's a God who, who has made a provision for their sins, who, who's offered a gift that can reconcile them into a right relationship, a, a God who's offered living water and, and the bread of life and, and promises to give us joy in all its fullness in this life and joy forevermore in eternity. All of us, I'm sure, have people in our lives who need to know the Lord. Some of you might be thinking right now, but, but Pastor Jason, I, I, I just don't think my friends or my family, I, I don't think they're ready to believe. You know, I, I, I just don't think they're ready to hear the gospel from me. I, I've, I've made that kind of excuse before, myself. But friends, I want to tell you something. I, I just don't think that excuse holds up in light of the example of the Samaritan woman we looked at last week. I mean, think about this Samaritan woman. The people of her village had all the reason in the world to reject her and her Jesus. I mean, she's at the well at noon because she's trying to avoid people because she's an outcast in their town. She's had five husbands. She's living with a sixth man now. Like, this is not like somebody that the town rallied around to hear good news from. And yet she goes and, and she shares with them about this man. Come and see, she says. They had all the reason in the world to reject her. They had all the reason in the world to reject Jesus. Samaritans embracing a Jewish Messiah? No. And yet, it was the Holy Spirit that moved powerfully through this woman's faithfulness and her testimony. And again, what was her testimony? It was so simple, come and see. Come and see a man. An invitation to come and see Jesus. I wonder, friends, how much spiritual harvest we miss out on simply because we fail to tell others about what Jesus means to us, about what Jesus has done in our lives. I want to encourage you today, friends. We, we live in a world full of struggling people. COVID concerns, kids forced out of their schools, talk of lockdowns, anger and disunity every day in the news, depression on the rise, marital troubles, addiction battles, thoughts of suicide, and on and on. Church, our world needs Jesus. They need the hope of Jesus. They need the word of Jesus. They need someone to tell them the good news of Jesus. And I'm going to let you know something, friends. This might not be as hard as we often make it out to be. This might not be as hard as we think, the idea of sharing the good news of Jesus with others. Look, look, look at what Jesus says to his disciples in verses 36 through 38. He says, the fields are white for harvest. And then he says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others labored, and you have entered into their labor. Notice what Jesus says here. When it comes to evangelism, when it comes to harvesting these fields that are, that are ripe, white unto harvest, Jesus says there, there are three roles involved in evangelism. He says there are some who sow, they're sowers of the seed. There are some who reap, who, who get to harvest the fruit. But then he says there are others who labored, who, who cultivate and tend the fields and, and water the fields and, and take care of them and do the weeding and the hard work of laboring in the fields. And all of these roles are essential in the process of evangelism. We need some who plant seed. We need some who do the hard work of, of cultivating the crop as it's growing and developing, tending it, caring for it. And then others get the joy of reaping the harvest. I think far too often when we think about evangelism, you know, we, we so often think that we have to be the one who seals the deal. You know what I mean? Like, like I got to share about Jesus and, and I got to be the one who brings this person to Jesus. But, but that's not the metaphor that Jesus shares. He says evangelism is more like being a gardener. He, and, and, and if we're going to reap the fruit, you have to first have a garden. And you have to first tend the garden. 
And, and that implies somebody is out sowing seed. That implies somebody's caring for the garden. That implies somebody then reaps the fruit when it's ripe. But I think all of us can relate to the idea of being a gardener, right? God might not call you to be a seed sower. Maybe he's called you to be someone who tends the garden. And there are all kinds of ways that we tend the garden. Every time we come and and serve here at church, in one of the ministries of our church, you're you're tending the garden. Those of you who serve on, on Sunday mornings in roles like ushers and greeters and welcome team members, that's all part of tending the garden. When you serve on Wednesday nights in children's ministry, in Awana or a student ministry, or you serve as an ABF leader or in a small group, or you're mentoring someone in a one-on-one relationship, all of that is part of tending the garden. And you can't reap the fruit of the harvest until it's ripe. But it won't be ripe until it's ready. And part of that readiness is we need people who sow seed. We need people who tend the garden. We need people then who reap the fruit. See, all of us can play a role in this process of sharing the good news of Jesus. We're not all reapers of the harvest, but but we can all play a role in working the garden. The right time, friends, is always the time right now. Are you in the garden? Are you in the process of of cultivating fruit? Are, Are you sowing seed? Are you in the process of reaping But all of us need to be in the garden one way or another. That's part of obeying the Heavenly Father's will. Now the third lesson that we see here in our passage this morning, seeing isn't believing, but believing is always seeing. Seeing isn't believing, but believing is always seeing. In verse 54, at the very end of our passage, John makes an interesting statement. He says, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. At the very end of our passage this morning, after Jesus has miraculously healed this official son, John tells us this was the second sign. What we're looking at here is the second sign. And if you remember, friends, John uses the term sign in reference to the miracles of Jesus. And for John, the miracles of Jesus were not just simply raw displays of Jesus' power. They were more than that. They were signs. And, And he highlights specific miracles as signs because he wants us to see a meaning that was deeper embedded within the miracle. This, this wasn't just Jesus doing incredible feats. This was, there was something significant here that John wants us to see. There was a message here. And what was the message of the miracle here in this sign? Seeing isn't believing, but believing is always seeing. Well, let's consider this message from the Lord together. In verses 39 through 42, we see the response of the Samaritans to Jesus' ministry among them. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when they, when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The Samaritans spent two days with Jesus at the feet of Jesus, hearing the teaching of Jesus, hearing the words of Jesus. And after two days with Jesus, the Samaritans proclaim him to be the Savior of the world. Friends, you want to know something amazing? This is the first time in the whole New Testament that that title is used for Jesus. Don't tell me God doesn't do miracles, friends. If you would ask the disciples the day before this, who do you think are the most likely people in the world to embrace Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior of the world? I guarantee you the Samaritans would have been way down on their list. And yet it's the Samaritans, the half-breeds, these godless people, the, the ones that the Jews don't associate. It's the Samaritans who first recognize Jesus as the Savior of the world. And this incredible acknowledgement from the Samaritans comes, according to verse 41, on the basis of God's word, on the basis of the word of Jesus. And many more believe because of his word. 
They, they, they themselves said to this woman, we, it's no longer because of your testimony, but we've heard for ourselves. Why did they believe in Jesus? It was because of the power of the word of Jesus. Jesus didn't perform any miracles there in Samaria. There were no signs and wonders, but the Samaritans believed and proclaimed him the Savior of the world because of the power of his word. Friends, don't ever forget there is power in the word of God. People sometimes ask me, Jason, why do we always preach through books of the Bible at Lakes Free? You know, why don't we do some topical messages once in a while? Friends, let me tell you why we preach through the books of the Bible. It's because God's word has some more, something more important to say than anything I have to say. All right? This is what we need. The word of God. There's power in the word of God. As, as Hebrews 4.12 tells us, the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. You don't need to hear Jason's wisdom. You, you need to hear the word of God, friends. This is what it's about. And I'm going to tell you something. More people throughout history have been saved by the simple power of God's word than by any evangelistic technique ever devised. You want to know how to be an evangelist? Share the word of God with people. Share the word of God. There's power in the word. And so the Samaritans here, they believed the message of Jesus. They received the word of Jesus. And in believing, they saw the truth about Jesus. They received his word. They believed his word. And they came to see. Truly, this man is the Savior of the world. But then John shows us this picture of tragic contrast. As we move into verses 43 through 48, we we see a tragic contrast between the the response of the Samaritans and the response of the Jews in Cana of Galilee. In verse 43, after the two days, he departed for Galilee. And then John inserts these ominous words here. Verse 44, he says, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. John is preparing us for the response of the Jews to Jesus. But it's interesting because at first the response of the Jews to Jesus looks pretty positive. Verse 45, So when he had come to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So it appears that Jesus is welcomed. Like they had seen Jesus down in Jerusalem. They had seen all that he had done and they were excited. Now Jesus has come to town. And, and, and as he comes to Cana in Galilee, we're, we're told that this official, a royal official in verse 46, the word official there in Greek is basilikos. It, it means the king's man. The king's man. This man was probably an official in the court of Herod Antipas, who was the king of the region of Galilee at the time of Jesus. The, this royal official, the king's man, comes to Jesus and pleads for Jesus to help him with his son who is homesick. But it's very interesting the response Jesus shares with this royal official. In verse 48, we read, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Here's a man pleading for his son's life. And Jesus shares this interesting response, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Friends, it's important that we recognize here the you that Jesus shares in verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders. That you in the Greek is plural. So Jesus is not speaking to the royal official here. Jesus is speaking to the crowds of Jews who are around him, and he's saying to the crowds around him, you in the plural, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Remember we saw back in John chapter 2, verses 23 and 25, John tells us that the Jews of Jerusalem The Jews from Galilee who were in Jerusalem with Jesus during the Passover, they saw all the signs and wonders. And John tells us that they believed in Jesus because of what they saw. But do you remember what John says then? He says, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Why? Because then John tells us, because Jesus knows. Jesus knows the hearts of all men. Jesus knew that that their faith wasn't genuine. And so here again, as he comes to Cana in Galilee, the Jews welcomed Jesus because of the miracles they had seen him perform in Jerusalem. But beyond 
his displays of power, beyond his miracles, the Jews had very little interest in the person and message of Jesus. It reminds me of when I was a kid, my, my dad used to teach over in Hawaii every year, and so as, as kids growing up, we, we got to go to Hawaii many times with my dad. And uh, when we would go over to Honolulu, for example, there, there's a place in Honolulu, a tourist trap called International Marketplace, and, and there's all these street performers out there. And, and one of the street performers is the Silver Robot Man. All right, this guy is literally painted head to toe in silver, wearing a silver suit. And, and he was there year after year. And, and he would walk, you know, down the boardwalk and he would stop, you know, and he'd drop a quarter in his cup and he'd do these little robot moves, you know. And I remember as kids, my brother and I were just fascinated by this guy. We would follow him up and down the beach watching this guy for hours. I mean, he was just incredible. He like the robot walks and I mean, it's just amazing. He was a silver robot man. We, that's who we knew he was. But friends, we didn't care anything about who this guy was. We didn't care what he had to say. We just, we just wanted to see him perform. We just wanted to see him do his act. And in the same way, the Jews here in Cana of Galilee, they wanted the miracles, but not the Messiah. They wanted the show, but not the Savior. And what a difference, friends, from the response of the Samaritans. The Samaritans, they didn't see any miracles, but they believed and they saw the Messiah. They, they didn't get to witness a show, but they believed and they saw their Savior. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Friends, where does true belief come from? It comes from embracing the word of Christ. Seeing isn't believing, but believing is always seeing. And when we put our trust in the word of Christ, the Holy Spirit enlivens our hearts. He enlivens our souls so we can see the truth of Jesus. And to emphasize this point, John highlights Jesus' response to the pleas of the royal official and then the royal official's response to Jesus. In verses 49 through 54, after Jesus says to the crowd, you, you won't believe unless you see signs and wonders, the, the royal official continues to plead with Jesus, Jesus, please heal my son. And Jesus says to the royal official, go, your son will be well. And the royal official took Jesus at his word. He, he trusted the word of Jesus. Jesus just said, go. And, and he turned and he started the journey 20 miles back to Capernaum. And we're told that the next day as he's on his way home, his servants come and they meet him halfway and, and they express, your son is, is healed. Your son, the fever's been lifted. And the royal official said, when did this happen? And the servants tell him it was the very time the day before that Jesus said, go, your son will be healed. And as a result, we read that the royal official then went home and shared with his entire household the truth about Jesus. And his whole household came to faith in Jesus. What an incredible testimony. What a model for us. This was a man who, as we talked about last week, worshipped God in spirit and in truth. His heart's attitude was humble and submissive before the Lord. His, his, his worship was in truth receiving the word of the Lord. We, we, we can learn four things from this royal official. Let me, let me just put these on the screen for you real quick this morning. The royal official who believed unto sight, notice this man. Notice how he approached Jesus. He took his need to Jesus. And then he pleaded his need before Jesus. And then he trusted the word of Jesus. And then he testified to the faithfulness of Jesus. What a great model for all of us, friends. Do we take our needs to Jesus? Do we trust the words of Jesus? Do we then testify to the faithfulness of Jesus? But, but I want to share a, a brief word of caution here. There are many people in the church today who, who teach a false heresy that says if you simply have enough faith, God will perform the miracle you desire. 
There are many people in, in movements like the Word of Faith movement and, and in prosperity theology and in the New Apostolic Reformation, these various movements that are literally growing in the church today that teach if you just have enough faith, if you just believe hard enough, God will do your miracle. But friends, while we know Jesus can do miracles, like he did for the official son, we we need to also recognize that God doesn't always answer our prayers in the way that we would like. But he does always answer our prayers. And his answer is always best. We won't always see the miracle we desire. But friends, we will always see God's faithfulness. And when you experience God's faithfulness, friends, you come to see that that this is really the greatest miracle of all. The faithfulness of God, no matter our circumstances. 2,600 years ago, the people of Israel were facing imminent doom. The Babylonian Empire had come against the southern kingdom of Judea and they had surrounded Jerusalem. Jerusalem was only days away from being completely destroyed. The people of Judea taken as exiles into Babylon. Their lives ruined. Their homes destroyed. Many of the people killed. And the people of Jerusalem in these days were crying out to God, God, have you forsaken us? God, have you forgotten us? God, what about your promises to us? And God, through the prophet Isaiah, shared the following words with these people days before they were to be conquered by the Babylonians. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Friends, this was God's testament to the people of Israel as they were facing exile, as they were wondering if God had forgotten them and ignored them. God says, trust me, trust me, and you will walk and not grow weary. You will run and not be faint. You will mount up on wings like eagles. Friends, do you believe those promises today? See, to believe is to see. To trust God's word is to experience his faithfulness. And so I want to encourage you this morning, take your need to Jesus Trust the word and promises of Jesus. And I promise you, you will see the faithfulness of Jesus. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for these powerful truths that we've had a chance to look at together this morning. We thank you for your word and the power that is in your word and the promise of your faithfulness to us, Lord. And I pray, God, that as we look to you and your faithfulness to us, that we would be inspired to live more faithfully in your will for our lives. God, help us live with a priority that that puts your will first and foremost. Help us live with kingdom priorities and gospel priorities. Help us live with with a heart and passion for, for advancing the good news of the gospel because the fields are white unto harvest. Help us believe and trust your word. And even in the midst of the trials and hardships of our lives, Lord, may we remember that you are always faithful. And as we believe and see and experience your faithfulness, may we be faithful in testifying to your faithfulness to us so that others might know that there is a God who is good, a God they can trust in, a God who answers prayer, a God who always delivers We thank you, Lord, for these great truths this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction today. It comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, 
And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. God bless you this week, friends. Hi everybody, Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church, you can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.